Well, hello there. This is Brian Lanson, and you've tuned into this episode of the Altitude Sessions podcast, coming to you from our studio in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. We're glad you stopped by. Got a nice end of year episode here that we want to put together. Talk about uh, ways to think a little bit more creatively to push your boundaries and to talk about how sometimes innovation and disruption is happening right in front of your eyes, but it happens over a pretty long period and it's hard to see all the day in and day out steps. It's a pretty interesting thing we'll talk about with the evolution of horses into the automobile and how that applies to some of the things that are happening in our industry today. So it's a great episode. Let's get after it. Glad you're here. Well, all right, this is the late night holiday special. It's the, uh, been on the road a ton lately, which we're really grateful for around uh, the M4 team and, you know, just grateful for all the opportunity that this community continues to build upon together and you bring us in to be a part of. It's really been a, a great year of focus for our team here in 2019 to kind of build a platform going into 2020 that I think is really starting to hit its inflection point, starting to really coalesce around some pretty special stuff that's happening, uh, you know, amongst many of you who have now, some of you have many years of experience with each other and starting to really think through how to work and bring things to market in a way that is meaningful. And you've allowed us to come into your lives to help you think a little bit differently. And this episode, I think, you know, is one of those those final episodes as we, you know, start to look toward 2020. I think it, this will be one of those where I hope we, we get you to think a little bit differently, just looking at the historical con- context of some of the things that have been going on in the world of innovation and how sometimes that innovation can feel awfully, awfully slow and it may be unfolding right before your eyes, but you may not always see it, at least not immediately. And that's where we want to jump in today. I, w- I really want to kind of wrap into a story that comes from the Saturday Evening Post that was written in April 15th of 1911. And it really focuses on a gentleman, if you're an automobile buff, this is a name that I think you'll probably know, but it focuses on a guy named Alexander Winton, and we're going to take his story a bit and talk through some of the things that he went through as the world evolved from being dependent on the horse and carriage into something that's gas-fired and ready to rock and roll in the form of an automobile, and, you know, he was one of the very, on the front end, the very early visionaries that the world could change and that it needed to change, and that there was something with greater economic good coming because the automobile could be built that would finally far outpace the advantages of what folks were seeing with with the horse, and the horse being around for many centuries. So Alexander Winton was a bicycle maker, and... It's really it's kind of fascinating when you think about some of the things that happened on the innovation front and the fact that in his, his, his lifetime and really in just about a span of a decade, the bicycle came to, came to pass and started to become a more convenient mode of transportation around cities like New York and Cleveland and other places. 
And it was this, you know, thing that required, obviously, all of us have gotten on a bike, well, duh, no shit. It's one of these things where you, you know, you have to pedal to make it go. It's human powered. And he actually believed and dreamed in a world where you wouldn't have to pedal and push all the time to actually, to actually mobilize yourself around the city. So the viewpoint was, what if we could find some way to, to power that activity and to actually create almost like a bicycle on steroids that would become kind of the next big thing. And in any specific situations like this, you know, these early dreamers that, that come out of the woodwork that want to really take society a leap forward, they're oftentimes met with some pretty significant obstacles. In this 1911 Saturday Evening Post article, which is kind of a looking back as a historical on the things that Alexander Witten went through to, to innovate, actually takes you all the way back to 1896 when he founded the Winton Motor, Motor Carriage Company, which in its first year actually turned out a whopping four cars. That happened in 1897. The very first car was actually sold for $1,000 that had, it was gasoline-powered. It was this gasoline-powered engine. But that's not necessarily the, the major point. The first, the first point with a lot of this is that if you're this innovator and you're, you live in a world and a society where the mass, the population, the masses, they see horse-drawn carriages, they see the, the societal infrastructure already being built to support these carriages and to support the transportation back and forth throughout the city, all the watering troughs and the folks that specialized in carriages and built carriages and the folks that cleaned up all the manure and the, the nonsense that came from the horses traversing the city back and forth, you know, throughout the day and kind of the mess that that left and the, the dirt roads and the mud and all the things that come with that. That's the world that even in the U.S., we had this complete reliance on the horse for centuries. It was the horses that got folks out west. It's the horses that, that, that ran and transported people in the major metropolitan cities back east. It was the horse that was the major way of transporting yourself in our country. And for folks that live in that world, just like most people, they couldn't see any alternatives to that. Alexander Winton was different. You know, one of the first points of this is that, you know, the, in, in the world of being an innovator, if you're an innovator, you know, the breakout stuff is often what gets you labeled as an imbecile first. And Winton was no, no, no uh, stranger to this. There were a lot of people, including his banker, that thought he was an idiot. He ran a very good bicycle business. The business was, was good. The client demand was there. But he wanted to go further because he, he knew and imagined in a world that was coming in pretty short order that there would be something that would modernize and mechanize the way that people get around town that extends and, and probably goes well beyond what the bicycle was doing at that time. So it's, it's kind of interesting just the fact that his banker calls and says, you know, I'm, I'm disappointed in you. That's the banker's way of saying, you're an idiot, you don't understand. You know, someone who's running a great business, you're about to screw everything up. I'm really disappointed in the decision-making, the fact that you want to start this motor carriage company 
because why the hell would we we as as a society need to change what we're doing with regard to how we get around the horses have been around for centuries you know you asshole there's there's no reason to solve this problem there's no need to solve this problem and that starts out as many innovators dilemmas you know when when you think about how things work in your society and in your maybe your company and your team maybe in your life where you've got some great idea so oftentimes the the breakout stuff presented in its earliest phases, people look sideways at you and go, you're an imbecile. So I, I just think that's interesting when you think about the story and how this sets up. And, you know, the banker comes right out. You know, the more logical person says, you're, you're really, I'm disappointed in you. You truly are an idiot. So why would you try to really waste time figuring out how to replace the horse? There's no need for doing that. But what I think is interesting is at the time, uh, and even the banker in this case, you know, uh, his, you know, Winton's banker, when, when he was shown this quote, his kind of justification for the business and, hey, support me, I really, I think I'm on to something. He actually quoted Thomas Edison, who, who actually said, you know, you can see in cities now that the bicycle's taking off and it's only a matter of time, you know, 10, whatever years, where something is the next leap to that is going to come, come online. And he's quoted saying that, and he's quoted saying that a great invention, which facilitates commerce, enriches a country just as much as the discovery of vast hordes of gold. So, you know, he's putting out there, you know, great inventors that invent things to the benefit of society that facilitates commerce. So that's the key word. It, what, what facilitates commerce? And it enriches a country just as much, if you can find that invention, that enriches commerce. That, that facilitates commerce, it enriches a country just as much as the discovery of vast hordes of gold. Which the banker replied, he's another inventor idiot, you know, shut up. So what I thought was interesting was as I went back and kind of reviewed this story, and we're going to make some points with regard to healthcare here in a minute, but what I thought was interesting is that the, the, a lot of, one of the key points there is that a lot of innovative thinking that goes on in this world is often, you know, I'll say innovative with quotes around it, air quotes, is often too bound to what's already out there. And to me, I just feel like a lot of the thinking, even in healthcare, are around folks that, that are thinking about ways to better maybe the, the system supporting the horse leads to just a lot of incrementalism. And are you doing that? Because there's so much of that kind of quote-unquote innovative thinking that just adds very little market value. And I think that's something we're thinking about. And in this story, you know, what I think is kind of interesting is there was a blacksmith in New York at the same time named Joseph Barcelo that actually built a motorized horse. This is that example, you know, I see horses everywhere. We've been getting around on them forever. Why do I need, you know, this Winton's version of this bicycle or this new carriage that actually has tires, that has a motor, it gets you around. Why do we need that? Why don't we just build a better horse? 
in this case, the horse was 550 pounds and it could actually go, it could cruise at four miles per hour because it was mechanized and it got a hell of a lot of attention. Like, yeah, that's the invention. And a lot of people looked at it and said, yeah, that's, that's, that's potentially the one. And at the same time, you know, there were, there were cars that were being built off steam, steam engines. There were, there were cars that were being built with compressed air. There were, there were other, other inventions, if you will, at the time that were being put together that mirrored a lot of the other stuff that was already existed in society at the time. You know, the steam engine, because there's a lot of trains at the time, they, they, were, they operated on steam. So it's that incremental innovation, that incrementalism that even a lot of people we know in healthcare talk about. You know, this is an incremental industry. It's always going to work incrementally. Uh, We'll challenge that here in a minute. Because the question is, if you're an incremental thinker, are you really just building the, the mechanized horse? And does that mechanized horse live in the vein of Thomas Edison and what he was talking about. Is that the, the new break, breakthrough thing for society that's just as the equivalent of finding hordes of gold? So in this case, you know, the story keeps going on and on, and I won't talk about the story forever, you know, for this, this particular episode. But the thing that, that's, that always stands out to me is that and I talk about this even the culture of our company all the time here at M4, is that when you're trying to do different and new things and you're trying to collect and pull people together and assemble market partnerships that may be different and don't exist until, you know, don't exist until tomorrow because they don't exist today. And you're trying to find those things and help people assemble and pull those partnerships together so that they can build what's coming tomorrow. To do that, you have to have, is kind of another key point, you have to have grit and you have to have a deep form of self-reliance because sometimes you're charting a path to which the road is not paved so with that grit and that self-reliance and there are things that i've shared with our team in the past there's folks out there that you can pull articles like Pete carroll from the, the the coach of the seattle seahawks and he talks a lot about grit in their culture and it's it's just fascinating to see how that 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 word is used in, in different contexts but it but it is, it is a, a thing that is required of people that want to innovate and move industries forward. This industry certainly, I think, is required. Is having that grit and that ability to have some self-reliance. You know, because examples, as you moved into the you know, Winton story, at the time there weren't tires built for the thing that he wanted, what his vision was. So he had to go to companies like Goodrich and, you know, sit, sits with them in, in Cleveland because he, he started this business in Ohio. And he sits with Goodrich and he says, hey, I, I want you to build me a bigger bicycle tire, basically something that's bigger that can operate this carriage. And the folks at Goodrich were like, we'll build the molds, we'll build the tires. We have to pay for both of them up front because we don't believe that there's going to be any demand for this shit. And we don't want to be, hold, we don't want to be holding the bag on this. And we don't want to be holding the molds and the cost of the mold and the inventory. You're going to have to take all that risk yourself. And Winton, being the believer and the entrepreneur and the innovator that he was, he said, yeah, done. I'll pay you. And the story leads on and on and on. You know, in 1897, they decide to, you know, Winton decides to prove the value of his machine despite all the skepticism, and he decides to make a trip from Cleveland to New York City. 
The trip started on July the 28th in 97 of 1897, stops in the gets and arrives to New York City on August the 7th. Overcoming terrible roads, because again, we're in a society at this point where nice paved roads aren't required for cars and tires. So there's mud and there's deep sand and mountains to pull up and down and other things. And it's actually in the mountains on that trip where a lot of the folks that lived there actually started to see the first real utility of the gas-powered engine. They made the entire trip on six mile or six gallons of gasoline. Where at that time, it's not like there were stations where you could pull over on the side of the road and ask for help. You had to, or fill up or those type of things. You actually had to go into a pharmacy and see what kind of this highly volatile gasoline they had back then, if they had any. Just to make sure you had enough to make the trip. But they made the entire trip over that many days on six gallons of gas. Get there and roll into New York and prove the story. And, you know, for a lot of the folks that were skeptical, did it really change their mind? Not at that point, but as innovators do, they started to build a coalition of the willing of, of people that started to believe, started to believe that, yeah, what Winton's talking about is possible. And that, yeah, what's being built here could replace all of these highly expensive and dirty and dangerous and disease-filled water troughs that horses are messing around in that, you know, all the horse manure that's being dumped all over the city. God, wouldn't it be great if we could get rid of that? This city maybe doesn't smell like shit. And wouldn't that be a benefit to society? So people started to think about it. To give you an idea how innovation creeps up on you. In 1890, so this is 1890, and just keeping in mind that when we started this story, that our good friend, Mr. Winton, started the Winton Motor Company, or Carriage Company, in 1896. So we're talking four years later when we looked at these stats. In 1890, there were estimated to be 13,800 companies in the United States that were in the business of building carriages pulled by horses. 30 years later, in 1920, there were only 90 such known companies still around. So from the time a dreamer started in 1896 to put this idea into motion, leading up into the 1920s, there were roughly 13,000 companies in the United States that were tied to the horse and carriage business that were no longer around. Sure, it took three decades. And how many times have we had conversations even in our group about sort of some of the things that feel like they're percolating underneath our feet? But ah, it's still too far out, too far away. It's maybe a slow-moving disaster for some of us and some of the things that are going on in this industry, but it doesn't mean that certain things aren't coming. It doesn't mean that certain change isn't afoot. And it doesn't mean that when we turn back and we look at where we are today, versus where we are 10 years from now, so when we look 10 years from now back, that we're not going to notice probably a significant degree of movement. You know, the first 10 years of the iPhone was pretty significant in how it changed our economy, how it changed the way people interact, how it changed the way people communicate, how it changed the way information gets to people. That only took a decade. So what is this next 
decade going to look like for us? And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But, you know, 1896, our, our friend Winton, star of this story, starts his idea. 1903, Henry Ford and the Ford Motor Company gets, gets founded. 1913, the first major assembly line is cranking at the Ford Motor Company that actually allowed the United States to assemble over 3 million cars, 3.6 million, which was a 300-fold increase in productivity from when Ford started in 1903. So, you know, you're talking about a period of, you know, let's call it 15 to 17 years that we saw a very significant change in adoption of the American automobile that replaced centuries of the U.S., relying on the horse and carriage. So it leads to some points that I want to get into here. And the first is, there, there's, uh, we've talked about this, this uh, magazine in the past that picked up at Target, I think it was two or three episodes ago, but there's a lot of good stuff in it. But it's a Time Special Edition magazine that was on the science of creativity. I've actually enjoyed reading just about all the articles. This one is a little bit more artsy, but the thing that there's something called Pushing Your Envelope, which is one of the articles that's in there, that was written by a guy named Rod Judkins. And some of the nuggets that I pulled out of that that I just want to drive forward when you think about your role in healthcare, your role as a leader, your role as someone who leads a team, your role as someone who leads a company, your role as an investor who's trying to have your 1896 moment to move something forward that 10 years from now will be a significant piece of this industry 20 years from now may dominate this industry. Is that, you know, the first point that it talked, and this is an article that was talking about folks that really push the boundaries of their creativity, really pushing the envelope, pushing as hard as they can, digging as deep as they can, driving as hard as they can. The first takeaway from it is that we don't connect, those folks that really don't connect with their real talents, we, basically we've, we fail to attain our real potential because we don't push what we do to some degree of excess. It's the whole 10 hours and hours of training and other things that people talk about, but really those folks that are truly unique and creative and other things, how do you push that creativity to its point of excess? You know, there's conversations about avoid making perfection the enemy of originality, which I think we all know that perfectionism is kind of a roadblock to new ideas. And that innovation requires errors and failures because they lead to new ideas. I think we all kind of know these type of things. But the big question I have for you, you know, taking these kind of the common sense insights that were pulled out of this article is that how many times have you because I believe brilliance actually, if we're really honest about it, brilliance actually sits within all of us. Some of us just have a some of us just have a bigger governor where we quash it and we push it down. We don't let it live, we don't let it breathe, we don't let it be pump, become part of our identity. I don't want to be that that weirdo, that crazy fucker, you know, whatever. I don't want to be that person. But how many of us, because I believe we've all had these moments, have come up with a brilliant idea? spark, something unique, something that really got us going, put a charge through us, that we then immediately dismiss as impractical because we put the governor right back on. 
it's all sorts of impractical, impractical stuff, you know, choosing to, you know, fly a big metal tube to the moon, even fuck. I mean, trying to get a big heavy metal tube off the ground for air transport or the ideas of building rail all the way out to the West coast. So trains can travel East and West throughout the country. All the things that were difficult things that we've done that we've accomplished as, as a nation, as a people that had to be done despite the pragmatism and the rationality saying, God, that's stupid and that will be expensive and that's dangerous and that's illogical and who gives a shit? Why do we need to go to the moon? Everything's great here on earth. And yet, you know, I'm glad to see that we're starting to push boundaries again saying we want to go to Mars and we want to explore further. And the Space Force thing, I don't know. I guess there's an argument for that too, but we can talk about that later. But more importantly, at times, guys, we're, we all have to be genuinely innovative into the point where it's the passions that guide us and it's not always our, these rational ambitions that have to drive the next steps. You know, from a, from a career perspective, I counsel and talk to people all the time. And, you know, the thing that separates most folks that move up, particularly that, that run P&Ls and have to be creative in running their businesses and have to innovate and have to move at the speed of the market and other things, the, the thing that separates the folks that typically end up in those higher-level roles from those that sit in more middle management or maybe the lower parts of the organization is at times these folks allow their passions to take them to the, to the extremes so that they're in a position to where they're willing to take a few more risks than maybe the folks that are in the middle or the lower part of the organization would. I don't know a whole lot of people. I know some people might disagree with me on this, but I don't know a whole lot of people that when you get to the very tops of organizations that have been able to play it completely safe to get there that have gotten there because they're not creative, that have gotten there because they don't take risks. You know, there's some degree of risk-taking and some degree of counterbalance to that that's set up and how teams are put together at that level, but there's, there are people that separate themselves from other folks in their organization to get to those levels because they are able to passionately drive forward certain initiatives and take, take risks. And those risks aren't always clearly defined. We talked about grit and self-reliance and the fact that sometimes the road's going to be muddy and sometimes the road's going to be rocky and it's going to be sandy and it's going to be deep and it's going to be a tough climb and all those things. That grit and self-reliance is part of it. It's part of what it takes to get to those levels that, that many of you aspire to be, or even if you're at those higher levels aspiring to the whatever that, that next thing is that you're, you're going toward. So that's what's, I think, pretty cool about that big question. You know, just, you know, if you have that brilliant idea, don't always immediately dismiss it as impractical. Go with it a bit. Go with it a bit with regard to your career. Go with it a bit with regard to how you're going to help impact this industry and make it a different and better place five to ten years from now than it is today. 
know, this article focused a lot on Alex, Alexander McQueen in the beginning. He was in the 90s. He transformed the fashion show into performance art. He was one of the first to do it, you know, instead of just boring runway models going up and down. No offense to the runway model. You're not all boring. I'm not trying to say that. But going up and down the runway and, you know, you've seen one, you've seen them all. You know, he was one of the first that basically brought wolves to terrorize audiences and recreated the mental asylums and had ice skating models and had rain falling on the runway. He created these, these encapsulating experiences that made the performing art come to life. And he was a very creative and well thought of designer and did wonderful things in the fashion world, but he pushed things to the extreme so that he could promote what they were doing. He pushed his creativity beyond what was considered the norm. A bicycle maker in the late 1800s pushed his creativity beyond what was considered the norm at the time. The horse was the standard runway gala of McQueen's time. What are we doing in our industry to start pushing things forward? Because these are the big questions that I think we're getting into, you know, specific to healthcare and specific to our industry. You know, we have recently gotten behind things like um, the uh, House Bill 3708, HR 3708, which was brought forth by the Democratic Party, actually, in this, from the state of Oregon. It's in the House, and it's the Primary Care Enhancement Act that is, I think, it's five page. The most recent thing that was filed was, I think, five pages in October. Pretty simple, but it basically allows for individuals to contribute toward direct primary care and still be eligible to contribute in a tax-exempt way into health savings accounts. This is just one of many opportunities to expand health savings accounts that I think we as an industry should be talking about. And you can go and read some of my previous thinking that I wrote even several years ago. I'm not a fan of health savings accounts being attached to high deductible health plans. I, I, I've never been a fan of that. I've never been a fan of the instrument being that limiting and that you have to have this super high deductible health plan, which in its own way can be regressive to lower income folks because if you've got this huge deductible and there's not enough money in the health savings account to cover some of the stuff that may happen to all of us when our number kind of comes up and we get sick and we, we need help, it really doesn't matter a whole lot. I'd rather see a world where we can decouple the health savings account, democratize it more, and allow people to, to use it for a whole range of healthcare-related services. And if we were able to do that, I think that's kind of one of those moments where Maybe we're starting to free up some of the creativity in our industry to solve solutions for people that are much more point-specific and targeted than how we do it today. You know, this whole central planning approach to healthcare, I think you can argue in the United States, it has a really tough time of going well. Some of you will come back and say, ah, Medicare is going really well, but Medicare really exists and operates to the extent that it does today because there is a 
commercial market that exists that wraps around a lot of the global expense that, that hits the industry. If there was no commercial insurance market, I think you could argue that the Medicare market, the way it's set up today, would be a lot tougher for it to run. There'd be a lot, hell of a lot of disruption, at the very least, and there'd be a hell of a lot of change with regard to how the healthcare delivery system is, is compensated and where all that money goes and how it flows and the pharmaceuticals and medical devices and insurers and so on and so forth. I mean, there's, there's a lot that would change if the commercial market as it existed today kind of folded in to a Medicare for all type play. And I've looked at all the various presidential proposals for folks that are running on the Democratic side, and it's been interesting to see the, the broad push and then kind of some of the walk back that's come back as folks, as they learn more and more about it, get a little bit less eager about it. And I'll take a pause. I mean, the, one of the main reasons, again, we're here in, in Wyoming is that there were a group of people that got here in the 90s that believed in you know, commercial solutions to solve a number of the issues that are in the healthcare space. And I, I believe in that too, to my core, because if you look at the way our government acts, it's hard to say, yeah, let's turn this whole thing over to them. I'd say in a more sensible world where we had much more cohesion in our government, you could argue that a, a bigger umbrella solution for the country should at least be on the table, but not with the way our government acts and not with the way that the folks in all the various chambers in D.C. and the echo chamber that that reverberates around the beltway there, not the way they act, not in this Twitter superstar congressperson world that we live in today where we want to snipe over tweets more than we want to actually resolve through governing. Those aren't the people that should be bequeathed with the honor of solving for this issue. You know, you look at a lot of the things that that have been going on. I mean, just think about the you know the Supreme Court challenge that's 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 in process right now around the eight billion dollars in risk corridor payments for insurance organizations that hopped into the Affordable Care Act game and got in the individual market and played the game by the way the rules were written at the time. And then there was a lot of finagling and the way that the the payments were going to be done and changes to the way the law was written and changes in the interpretation of the way the law was written and all these things. And next thing you know, a lot of people that got in the market on good faith to say, this is how we were planning for the market to work, you know, now have over $8 billion in payments that are being held up. And, you know, that's in a court challenge and, and we'll see how it goes. But just the fact that there's that level of uncertainty that can be put out there is what makes this whole federal takeover argument, I think, pretty uneasy. It makes a lot of people, I think, feel relatively uneasy. And we're kind of in, you know, I'll say with the word uneasy for a bit, we're in an uneasy time. We, we're looking for solutions because you can, you can argue that the way the current market and the current system, the way it's working today, is leaving a lot of people behind. And if you can't put your full faith and trust in the government to behave and actually figure things out on their end, then what in the fuck are we going to do? Well, that's part of the reason why we have our group. That's part of the reason why we're building this community because I still believe that that what the fuck are we going to do moment has to come from commercial market solutions. Sure, it's a partnership with the, with the federal government, but it's almost like the check and balances are required between the commercial market and the federal government pushing and pulling on each other to make the whole system 
in aggregate work. One without the other, I think that this whole damn thing implodes, and God help us, who knows where the hell we'll be. So this gets to my, kind of my closing points in my moment about, you know, as we, as we really start to turn the page and we start to look toward the work in front of us as a community in 2020, Here's, here's where I, I want to I go. I mean, we've talked a little bit about what's going on with HSA expansion. I think there's a whole heck of a lot more we can be talking about looking down the line with the things like ICRAs, which is the individual coverage HRA, uh, things like the EBRA, the accepted benefit HRA, and some of the things that are, that are being pushed. These are, the, these are kind of that, what I would call those I don't know, call it, we'll stick with the automobile analogy. Let's call it that 30-year innovation moment. And we might already be 10 years into it, 15 years into it, 20 years into it, and the ground's starting to shift. The horse manure is going away. The, the stench in the city's going away. The water troughs are being removed. The carriage companies are being outplaced with new things that are coming in. And in our world, the buzzwords are like digital, and you know we're going to be much more digital health enabled and, you know, digital therapeutics and digital da, 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 da. And those are things that people are focusing on, which I think is interesting. But I think there's just some core things, you know, just core fundamental things first that innovators have to get after. And one of those is that if we don't want this core centralized planning thing that is this government runs most or all of the healthcare system. We need this healthy balance between commercial activity and innovation and centralized government control. And if we need those two things working and pulling on each other to, to really drive our system and maybe mold it and mesh it in a way that it truly makes sense, would one of the first arguments be that we should look at the complete expansion of HSAs and we should decouple them from high deductible health plans. And this coming from the guy that hates HSAs coupled with high deductible health plans. But should that be one of the first steps? You can already see that groundswell stuff, you know, that's with, with ICRAs is an example because there's the ability to, if you have an individual health plan, you, you now have the ability to look at all the things that are in IRS publication 502 and say, gosh, these are all the expenses that can be reimbursed under this program based on how you set it up with your employer and the administrator. There's all this stuff happening around subscription-based care. There's all this stuff starting to happen around pay-as-you-go type care that, that's happening in the dental world, that's happening in the vision world. There's more retail-related things that are starting to happen. And can we start to say that perhaps maybe the world that we that we see is starting to look at things like the employer-sponsored model and say, maybe that's the horse and that's the carriage. Medicare, Medicaid, things like ICRAs, you know, could potentially take hold a little bit more. Those are all consumer-based products. Those are things where individuals make their own decisions, control their own destiny with some impact and maybe some financial offset from an employer. Do these things start to move the industry more into this direction of 
being able to highly tailor and customize really innovative solutions, really to set the minds of people like you listening to this ablaze into going to figure out targeted solutions to help to help specific classes of consumers succeed to better maintain their health, to engage and interact with the system in a way that feels more targeted and maybe even more equitable to them. Because I do love a lot of the arguments that are out there against things like HSAs. You can leave it to our friends at places like the Commonwealth Fund and others that have pulled IRS data from the past and they've written articles like, you know, going back as far as 2013, they said, hey, you know, three-tenths of 1% of all households claim that they have, they've deducted, they have some deduction that's tied toward an HSA, tied to an HDHP. That's an example of this unequal HSA model that's been built is just a you know pile of horseshit no pun intended that we should just get rid of it's there's no equality to it it helps the rich it doesn't help the poor uh, it's a stupid instrument just let's move beyond it and that's why I always like to push back I'm like well I don't you know can I just call bullshit on it because in the same vein you know there have been studies out there by companies like Piper Jaffrey that have been looking at you know, the, the people talk about all the time, like the Amazons of the world and such. 52% of all households with income between $21,000 and $41,000 a year in annual income, 52% of those households actually subscribe to Amazon Prime. And a company like Amazon has in the last, and that was in 2017 when they did this study, starting around 2016 and moving into where we are now, I mean, Amazon's made a very concerted effort to continue to grow their Prime memberships by creating services and offerings and lower price points if you're on government assistance and cash pay at the store options and other things that get people enrolled in Prime to go after that segment of the market and to offer their service and get their hooks into folks not only the top end of their income chain, but also all the way down to the bottom end of the chain and say, hey, we're going to find ways to target solutions with Prime to people of all income classes. My argument is, if we expanded HSAs, why couldn't we do the same thing there? You know, instead of just coming up with this, I mean, it's a logical argument, but instead of coming up with this argument, say, gosh, HSAs suck because they, they really crush the poor. What if you turned it around and said HSAs is a way for employers to give people of all income classes dollars to spend? and then allow a market to come to them that helps them tailor how they spend those dollars. Amazon's doing it with Prime. Why can't the healthcare system do that with these folks? There's a whole world of different types of dental engagement solutions, vision engagement solutions, health solutions, primary care, direct primary care, telemedicine, all the things that we're thinking through today, diagnostic-based care that comes via a watch that sits on our wrist and tells us, you know, when it's time to kick the car over in the garage and figure out what's wrong with it. There's all sorts of things that can be developed in that world. The question is, and I've talked to many people, is it, is it this B2B2C model that gets us there or is it just going B2C? And I think that's the question I want to continue to hammer. And I know there's plenty of people on the other side of this issue that want to come back to me and say, hey, I want to talk about it from our perspective and why we think it matters. 
All I'm asking on your end is just have an argument with me that tells me why you guys aren't mechanizing the horse. And that's a discussion I think is worth having. So I think that, you know, here we are in the early throws of the morning talking about innovation, talking about where this industry can go, talking about the optimism of the new year in front of us. Talking about, you know, wrapping up what really was been a wonderful 2019 for this community. The community that really think is just, like I said, at the onset of this discussion, just really just getting going. I'm excited about what we have in front of us. And I'll leave you with this. So one of the framers of our constitution is Alexander Hamilton. And a lot of you know him for gun rights and some of the other things that he's talking, freedom of the press, some of the things that he's a big, big fan of uh, when he was writing, you know, the Federalist Papers and, and those type of things. But Hamilton had one quote that has always stood and kind of reigned supreme for me, and that was, quote, those who stand for nothing fall for everything, end quote. And the beauty of what we do here is I'm not asking you to stand for what I stand for or what anybody on my team stands for. I'm not necessarily asking you to stand for what another one of your colleagues stands for. I'm asking you to be willing to listen just as much as we'll be willing to listen to you in the coming weeks and months and to help guide a course together however we can do that. But what I am asking you to do more than anything as you look into 2020 is to stand for something. Stand for something because those, again, Hamilton said in his wisdom, quote, those who stand for nothing fall for everything, end quote. Don't fall for everything. Don't fall for the status quo. Let's start pushing together. Let's make these next three, five, ten years better than the previous three, five, and ten years. Let's leave a legacy because of the work that we're doing now that says 20, 30 years from now when people look back, they go, God, that might have been a Winton moment. Let's do that. Let's do that together as we turn into 2020. It's been a great honor to work with all of you this year. I look forward to seeing many of you next. Until then, this is Brian Melanson signing off from the Altitude Sessions podcast. We'll be back here in a few weeks. Thanks.